from this episode. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is maybe my landing gears, my tires, uh, the exterior of the fuselage. And a lot of times that's an easy fix. But what causes the delays is when these airlines don't have the parts on hand. You know, maybe we could be working for a major carrier and maybe they have this specific part we need to replace in Seattle, but not necessarily in, in JFK in New York. This is Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel to help you become a smarter and savvier traveler. While flying can be stressful and frustrating, the world of commercial aviation is also incredibly intriguing. Flying Smarter delves into the miraculous and often misunderstood realm of air travel by sharing stories and experiences, looking at how things work in the air travel industry, and providing tips and advice for your next trip. Your host, Andrew, is here to answer your questions about flying and explore different aspects of the air travel experience to make you a better informed and better prepared traveler for your next flight. And welcome to episode 56 of Flying Smarter. My name is Andrew and I'm your host. In this episode, I'm going to start off by looking at airline flight numbering and then talk about United Airlines' halfway to Hawaii game. Then, for the main segment, we have the first part of my chat with aviation maintenance engineer and professor Brian Bermudez, who is here to enlighten us about aviation maintenance. Now, let's get started. How do airlines pick their flight numbers? How flight numbers get assigned is largely up to individual airlines, with each carrier having their own conventions and practices for numbering their flights. However, there are some overarching themes and common practices across the industry, and I'll take a look at that now. For instance, eastbound and northbound flights are often given even flight numbers, whereas westbound and southbound flights are often given odd flight numbers. If an airline has multiple flights per day between two airports, they might have all the flight numbers in close proximity to each other and in ascending order throughout the day. For example, on the Monday before the publication of this episode, which is February 19th, 2024, British Airways flew seven flights from London Heathrow to Parachal de Gaulle Airport. They were numbered as British Airways flights 304, 306, 308, 314, 316, 322, and 326. Like I said though, it's kind of up to the airline what they do, and you'll find plenty of flights that go against the North-South-East-West convention, and lots of airlines that don't number their flights as sequentially as they do in the British Airways example. If you look at the first four United Airlines flights from Chicago O'Hare International Airport to Washington Dulles on that same day, Monday, February 19th, they're numbered as flights 2190, 1943, 2483, and 2341. Some of these are even numbered, some of them are odd, and they certainly aren't in sequence. Another common convention is that low flight numbers, particularly single digit ones, are used for an airline's long haul premium routes or flagship routes. American Airlines Flight 1, for example, is used on its premium transcontinental route from New York JFK to Los Angeles. Japan Airlines Flight 1 is from San Francisco to Tokyo Haneda Airport. Air France Flight 1 is from New York JFK to Parachal de Gaulle, and Emirates Flight 1 is from Dubai to London Heathrow. Again, there are some exceptions to this though, like Cathay Pacific, who uses single and double digit flight numbers for cargo flights. There may also be specific instances where airlines assign flight numbers with some sort of significance. For example, 
Prior to this year's Super Bowl, some airlines added special flights to Las Vegas with flight numbers like 1989, which was a nod to Taylor Swift, or Flight 87 as a nod to Travis Kelsey. Another example is that since the number 8 is often considered lucky in Chinese culture, you'll have airlines number flights to China with the number 8. United Airlines' flight between San Francisco and Beijing, for example, is United Flight 888, and Air Canada Flight 8 is from Hong Kong to Vancouver. Airlines that have regional brands or affiliates typically use mid-range four-digit flight numbers for these flights. Delta Connection flights, for example, generally have flight numbers in the 3,000 to 5,000 range. United Express flights have flight numbers ranging from 3,000 to 6,999. At many airlines, flight numbers in the 9,000 range are charter, positioning, maintenance, or other non-passenger carrying flights. Codeshare flights also generally have mid-range or higher-range four-digit flight numbers, with codeshare numbers at United, for example, starting at 7,000. For more on what codesharing is, check out episode 17, titled Who is Actually Operating Your Flight? Airlines all have their own numbering systems and conventions. To illustrate this point, we can take a look at Air Canada as an example. Flight numbers at Air Canada below 100 are typically assigned to long-haul flights to Asia and South America. Then, flight numbers from 100 to 799 are generally domestic and transporter flights to the United States. Within this range, there are additional practices like how flights to Atlantic Canada are usually in the 600 range, and flights between Western Canadian airports and US airports are numbered in the 500s. Flight numbers in the 800 range are transatlantic flights to Europe, and then flight numbers in the 900 range are used for flights to vacation destinations in Central America and the Caribbean. Flights operated by Air Canada Rouge, the airline's leisure brand, are typically given flight numbers in the 1,000 to 2,000 range. The 3,000s to 6,000s are generally coacher flights, the 7,000s are for charter flights, and Air Canada Express flights are in the 8,000 range. I'm sure there are exceptions to these rules of course, but that's the general idea for Air Canada. Now, think of how each airline has its own rules and guidelines and conventions, and you can see how it really varies despite the existence of some common practices. Did you know that United has a game on flights to Hawaii called Halfway to Hawaii? Until around 2014, the game occurred on most United flights flying to Hawaii. The game was then dropped, but it was brought back when Hawaii reopened following the COVID-19 pandemic in early 2021. It is now back on United flights to Hawaii, although sometimes the crew don't offer it. The game basically works by having passengers guess the exact time that their plane would be halfway to Hawaii, down to the second. There was a time when the airline printed answer cards for passengers to write on, but they now have to use their own resources. The pilots will generally provide some basic information, like the distance, takeoff time, total flight time, cruising altitude, airspeed, and winds. Prizes have varied over the years, with past prizes including bottles of champagne and Fodor's travel guidebooks. When the game returned in 2021, the prize was a cooling gel pillow from United's Polaris business class, but I've also seen a recent tweet showing that the prize might now be bottles of hand cream. Reports lately have shown that the game isn't always offered, but if anyone knows what the current prize is or if I had an experience with it, give me a shout to let me know. Brian Bermudez is an aircraft maintenance engineer and a professor of aviation maintenance. He has worked as an aircraft maintenance technician for two major airlines in the United States and is now the president and founder of Craft of the Air, a multifaceted initiative encompassing aviation maintenance, consulting, and tutoring. 
Brian is also a professor and director of airframe and power plant curriculum at Vaughan College of Aeronautics and Technology, and is the creator and host of the CodaCast, an aviation podcast where he explores the various facets of aviation maintenance. I'm very pleased to have Brian join me here today. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Andrew, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Just a pleasure. Now let's start with something that travelers are bound to be uh, familiar with. So let's say your flight is getting ready to depart, uh, or let's say you're sitting at the gate, and you're either told or you see for your own eyes that uh, there's maintenance on board. What's going on? Well, you know what? That's a great question, Andrew. And that, that's not a sight that people want to necessarily see when they're getting ready to go on their trip and, and to see maintenance of somebody with a wrench or, or some tools getting on their plane. But, you know, it, it, it's a it, it's something that people would want to hear. A lot of the times when you see maintenance personnel getting on your plane, if the pilot hasn't asked you guys to deboard, chances are it's something that's minor and it's something that can be, you know, resolved at the gate. So that's that's a piece of good news. You know, a lot of people don't want to see a mechanic, but a lot of times when we see something, you know, maintenance on board the plane is something that can, you know, be relatively fixed pretty quickly and, and get everybody on their way. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. And I've never actually thought of it like that. Uh, but you're right. That, that is a good thing if uh, if they're getting on and you're still on the plane as opposed to, you know, maintenance is getting on and you're getting off the plane, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, a lot of times passengers wouldn't believe it. But, it, you know, one of uh, the biggest things when you see maintenance on board there, it could be something as simple as an overhead. You know, the overhead storage bin is not closing properly. So you, you kind of want to see them in the cabin because maybe it's something that's just aesthetic and something that can just easily be resolved. Right. Now, along the same lines, uh, aircraft maintenance is on the long list of things that can get your flight delayed or canceled. What are the most common maintenance issues that uh, can put an airliner out of service uh, and prevent it from actually operating its flight? Another great question, Andrew. You know, I think a lot of times we, 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 we hear so much about it in the media and social media about flight delays and, and cancellations going on. And when you think uh, from the maintenance perspective, a lot of times it comes down to the the items on the aircraft that are most in use or most probable to get uh, wear over time. And, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is maybe my landing gears, my tires, uh, the exterior, the fuselage. And a lot of times that's an easy fix. But what causes the delays is when these airlines don't have the parts on hand. You know, maybe uh, we could be working for a major carrier and Maybe they have this specific part we need to replace in Seattle, but not necessarily in, in JFK in New York. So a lot of times those maintenance issues, they come from parts that probably could be, you know, routinely, you know, fixed overnight and the plane can go in the morning. But a lot of times we don't have the parts and that's become more prevalent throughout the pandemic and after the pandemic. That's really interesting. And that's something that I was going to ask you about later. But uh, since it's come up now, uh, I think it might be a good time to ask. So like you mentioned, uh, at some airports, airlines might have very well staffed and well resourced uh, maintenance uh, operations. But sometimes at an outstation uh, or at uh, at smaller airports, maybe, you know, that might not be the case. So what happens uh, then when something goes wrong? You know, air transportation is something that takes place during the day. You know, uh, uh, people fly during the day for the most part, and and maintenance is done overnight. And as you mentioned, there's two places that that maintenance on aircraft can be done. It could be done in a hangar, or it could be done, uh, you know, at a what we call an FBO or forward base operation. 
You know, one of the biggest differences that we see with these two types of operations for maintenance is uh, we speak about line maintenance, maintenance that's done at an airport. And a lot of times you have mechanics that are working outside in the elements. They're very somewhat limited to the parts and some of the tools maybe needed for some of the jobs. And it's, I would say, a lot more labor intensive, a lot more involved in that. And you might be more limited. When we speak about these off-site maintenance or forward base operations, a lot of times we're speaking about maintenance that's being done inside a hangar. A lot of times this is where uh, airlines have their parts departments. And so we may have an abundance of parts available to that particular aircraft. In some hangars, actually, believe it or not, the hangar floors are heated in some parts in Alaska. And so it's much more comfortable for mechanics to get uh, maintenance done. And, and in certain cases, the maintenance is done a little bit quicker because you, your, your mechanics are more comfortable. It's a lot of differences, but still that, you know, making the air, aircraft airworthy is, you know, the, the, the main concern. And on that note, for those who are a little bit more nervous about flying, you know, there's tons of things in the in, in the air travel world that can stress people out, whether it's, uh, you know, TSA security all the way up to turbulence. Is maintenance something that uh, passengers need to be nervous about? Yeah, you know, when, when it comes down to air travel, there there's so many, you know, aspects to it that may uh, get people nervous and, and worried about flying. As you just mentioned, you know, TSA is, is a big stressor. You know, people just need to get to the airport. They have to go to security. Maintenance is probably the least of your worries. You know, when we think about it, you know, a lot of people may not want to hear it, but we have these computers on board and they're, re- they're designed for redundancy. There's multiple systems in place to make sure that there's plenty of safeguards available to, to, to our aircraft. You know, when we think about the other uh, you know, professions in aviation, we have ramp personnel, we have our cabin crew, we have our pilots. And in all of these aspects, we, we, we have the risks associated with them. But as far as maintenance goes, you know, these maintenance personnel, our aircraft maintenance engineers, they've, they've been properly trained. They've gone through a lot of schooling, a lot of, a lot of FAA compliance. And a lot of times, you know, uh, we we all share the same feeling when we're working on a plane in the evening. We take a, a sense of pride in that, a sense in maybe our loved ones are getting on this plane the next day, and we take a sense of pride in each plane. And so, when your plane is ready to go, and you're you're sitting on that plane and it's boarding, you, you had a couple of AMPs that did everything they could, and even if there's a small mistake, you know there's so many layers of redundancy that it t- it just takes so much for for a catastrophe to happen. Yeah, no, that's great to hear, and I'm sure uh, I'm sure that's reassuring for 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 people out there. Um, just to clarify, uh, you mentioned uh, AMP out there. Can you just uh, give our listeners uh, an over, a yeah. brief synopsis on what that means? Yeah, so so you know it's it, it's great. It's something that I, I think more people should be aware of of these AMPs. And AMP is is someone that is in the United States. They're federally licensed. There's two licenses: an airframe and a power plant license. And the FAA oversees the schooling and the testing requirements for that. And it's an AMP is someone that is federally licensed to fix an airplane. And somebody, some people may ask, well, what part of the airplane do you fix? You know, one of the first questions people ask is, what do you do for a living? And I say, oh, I'm an aircraft uh, mechanic. And I say, well, what part of the airplane do you fix? Well, an AMP fixes 
everything from the nose to the tail, from the power plant section, the turbine, to inside your reading lamps. And, you know, the reading lamp and, and your seat and your seat back tray table. So everything on an airplane, you, you have to hold uh, an FAA AMP license to, to just touch it and to sign off the airworthiness to make that plane um, legally safe to go and fly the next day. You, you have to have an AMP license. Wow. And that was actually something that uh, that I was wondering that I was going to ask you later on, to what extent uh, when, when you're licensed, what you can work on, what you can't. But I didn't realize that it was actually all of it. And uh, I guess yeah. that just speaks to the, the thoroughness and the rigorousness of the uh, the training that you have yeah. to go through, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's move behind the scenes a little bit. Uh, how often do airliners go in for regular maintenance? Oh, that's a great question. You know, when we look at, at maintenance, there's different levels of maintenance that a, a commercial airliner will see. Anywhere from a basic check, we call it kind of like a star flight, which is something that will have two AMPs park uh, their, their vehicle outside the aircraft uh, right around departure time. And they just want to babysit that plane, make sure that the pilots don't need anything or if the, any issues uh, arise during the boarding process. You know, a lot of times the aircraft is just all of these systems are just starting up. So that's when we may see some faults arising. Um, and then maintenance goes into more severe checks. You know, we have maintenance where we have uh, level one checks to level two, level three checks. And when I speak about level three checks, you know, now we're speaking about a plane that's going to go to a hangar. They remove all the seats from the aircraft, from the interior of the cabin, uh, sometimes the, even the floorboards of the aircraft, the lighting. And this type of maintenance is done uh, probably maybe once or twice a year. So that's a, that's a complete uh, kind of breakdown of the aircraft. When we speak about routine maintenance, when passengers regularly think about maybe the uh, airplane is like our car, it needs an oil change, it needs a regular preventative maintenance. That type of maintenance is done on the aircraft almost every night, uh, every time that plane comes in for its last flight and parks at that airport in the evening, you have a team, an army of AMPs that go to that aircraft and they're going to check the oil levels and, and make sure everything is, is functioning to, to operational standards. But, you know, we have more serious checks a couple of times a year, and that's when that aircraft will really be taken down to the studs and make sure that everything is, is properly done. Another thing that's, that's commonly done during that phase, you know, some of these airlines, a lot of times, this is their opportunity to maybe upgrade the interior of the cabin. Sometimes they may change the ambient lighting or possibly the uh, infotainment system for the passengers. So that also happens. Now, when you said every night, does that mean that an airline would either need to have its own AMPs or co essentially contracted AMPs at every single airport they fly to? I think for a majority of the mainline uh, airlines, when I say mainline, United, American, these major carriers, Delta, Alaska, they usually have AMPs at their station. So the, the airports that these airlines fly to, the routes that they operate. Now, for the airlines that are operating maybe less frequent routes, and maybe it's a place that maybe Alaska or Delta, they only fly to this location once a week. A lot of times they will have contract maintenance and contract maintenance is a third party provider that they separately hire AMPs, certified AMPs, and that airline will hire them on the, the, the needed basis. A lot of times uh, U.S. carriers will save a lot more money having in-house AMPs. And another, another 
a great positive that comes with that is in-house training. So these airlines want to make sure that their AMPs are maintaining the aircraft to their standards. And so I know we talked about a little bit earlier that uh, you're able to work on all different parts of the aircraft, but let's say either whether you work for you know a major airline with with all sorts of different types of uh, aircraft across your fleet or your contract uh, AMP for you know you contract with multiple airlines. When you're an aircraft maintenance engineer, are you able to work on all types of aircraft, or is there sort of like a certification and training process for different aircraft, or how does that work? You know that's an interesting question because when when you think of someone that can you know touch an aircraft and work on an airplane a helicopter any type of uh, plane in the united states they have to have an amp but what's interesting about that andrew is that when these engineers get hired by the, the mainline airlines and these carriers or contract maintenance whatever aircraft these airlines primarily operate they actually send these AMPs to additional training, and and the training is called Gen Fams, and it's it's sort of an additional certification that you must have on each specific type of aircraft model. So, for instance, we can have a Boeing seven three seven, or we can have a Boeing seven eighty seven Dreamliner, and they're two separate certifications, so to say. And it's interesting because you do need an AMP license in the United States to work on planes. But when you work for these specific companies, you can't sign these planes off until you've thoroughly learned these specific systems. So the airlines will send you for additional training. You know, in short, yes, an AMP can work on every plane in the United States. But when we speak about these uh, for hire people that are paying to get on these planes, a lot of times there's additional certifications that these companies have. Right, that that makes a lot of sense, and like you said, I mean, if you're certified to work on anything from a from a Cessna to a to an A380 to a right. helicopter, I'm sure there's a lot of nuance between all the yes. aircraft, and uh, and that's where the training comes in, right? Yes, exactly. The next episode of Flying Smarter will feature the second part of my discussion with Brian. We'll talk about how aircraft can often fly with items that are inoperable, how maintenance departments keep track of parts and ensure the right ones are used, how aircraft manufacturers and regulators give guidance to aircraft maintenance engineers, and much more. Brian will also tell us a little bit about what it takes to be an AMP and what the career path can look like. In the meantime, you can learn more about Brian, his work, and his podcast at craftoftheair.com and on social media, and we'll have links to all that in the episode description. Please take a minute to follow us on social media where you'll find things like podcast updates, additional content, visuals of the things we talk about, and sneak peeks. It's also a great way to reach out to me just to chat, or if you have any ideas or feedback about the podcast. Flying Smarter is on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Flying Smarter, and on X or Twitter at Flying underscore Smarter. That brings us to the end of episode 56 of Flying Smarter. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.